Hey Rockheads, if you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1147, with guest Elijah Manor. Recorded Tuesday, May 26th, 2015. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here for your benefit and ours, of course, we love .NET and all the things that go along with it, don't we, buddy? Yeah, and really enjoy telling stories and figuring stuff out. Like We're on the ride, too, right? I sent some new blood out in the .NET community, and um, some of it may come from people who have been working with .NET in the past and then went off and did other things and now coming back because there's some very cool things going on in the open source world. .NET wise, and uh, case in point, we saw a lot of new blood at Dev Intersection. Yeah, well, and I, and I do like the returns too because they come with new experiences, mm. so they're going to come at things a little differently too. But I'm totally with you. There was a while there where it felt like it was nothing but old fat white men that programmed in .NET, <laughs> you know. And then and then you remember that interview we did not that long ago with Heather Downing. That's right. Yeah, just a young woman, new to software, yep. super excited. Like mm. I'm not over her. Yeah, like she just sort of recharged my batteries for so much potential. I was just reading the comments on her show mm. recently, and just people being really excited to see that just because the tool's got a few versions under it doesn't mean it's old. Right, right. Well, I have some more interesting stuff to share with you on Better Know a Framework today. So roll that crazy music. Awesome. Hi, man. What do you got? Google is developing an operating system for the Internet of Things based on Android, and it's called Brillo. Oh, interesting. Just Google Brillo. You'll find it. But if you want a URL, go to tinyurl.com slash Google Brillo. And Brillo, just like it sounds, you know, the stuff you used to scrub pans with. Maybe you still do. I don't know. I wonder if there's an association there. Yeah, I don't know. But um, it's based on Android, and it's targeted at low-power devices like with 32 or 64 megs of RAM. So very small devices. Yeah, yeah. Well, think about IoT devices, just how small they get. They are, yeah. I mean, you've seen devices with uh, with a gig of RAM or half a gig of RAM on some of these things. But, you know, the, the jobs that they're doing are just don't call for that. No. Um, you know, much stuff. A so gig's a lot. We just forget. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting. So they're they're taking an android flavor and forking it for uh for the internet of things nice yeah you know in these days i'm very much of the mind i think back to the html5 battle back and forth between chrome and ie oh, and how much better it made our browsers yeah. as a whole yeah like th to have these really quite big companies push hard on this technology we're all going to benefit yes sir so that's what I got for you. Google Brillo. Love it, love it, love it. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1039. 
which is the one we did with Trevin Hetzel. We were talking about more CSS than JavaScript, mm. which I was kind of a really cool show. Right? Just, so there was a guy who really got CSS in a deep way and, and said, you know, you can do more. That stuff you're writing code for, you can do it more declaratively in CSS. Right. And, uh, and Tim Griff says, uh, whenever I hear people talk about CSS being the design and HTML being the data and JavaScript being the logic, I can't help but think that that person is being idealistic and actually doesn't program that much. Hmm. JavaScript does get full of design and HTML can't escape having stuff in the right order. And CSS may be all about design, but it can't do it on its own. Right. So thankfully, this guy actually came from a real world situation of showing you how you could replace some of that design of tabs based in JavaScript with a CSS solution while also recognizing that HTML still has the requirements to meet. Yeah, he sort of took away my CSS phobia. Yeah, just to, you know, here's some things. And yeah, nothing's pure. I, I really appreciate that, you know, viewpoint that I don't like ideologues. Maybe it wasn't so much phobia as it was just pain. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call that wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what happens when you put your hand on a burner, you know, you're only going to do that once. Yeah, you'll learn. Yeah. And Tim goes on to say, while he was talking, one thing I was questioning was if his approach was really a good idea, which he also questioned of himself in the end. Mm -hmm. Where I feel it went wrong was the use of hidden checks boxes in order to store state and the fact that tab one had to appear last in the markup. While this might not affect most end users, I feel fairly certain that random checkboxes and items in the wrong order would cause havoc for someone using a screen reader. Yeah, And I think what Tim is really implying here is, when you do those kinds of clever tricks like Trevor was talking about, what happens when a less sophisticated browser or a browser with different rules or, you know, stuff changes? Yeah. Does this fail elegantly? Mm. And I, you know, that's an excellent question. I, I don't know. I, have, I don't think anybody has the answer to it. I think that problem right there sums up the, the challenge of writing for the web, right? Yep. You know, it works on your desktop. You know, it works in your browser. And now there's a billion other devices that may interpret what you just wrote differently. And, it, you know, and so you can either guess or, you know, make an educated guess or test it against all these different devices. But but that those are the things, you know, those are the things that make it a challenge. Well, and there's just no way to anticipate what's going to happen here, right? Like, That's true. JavaScript and the web world is only getting weirder. So, you know, the possibilities are so infinite. It's very challenging to think about just because you can make it work in this version of this browser at this time. That's one thing. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from there. And, and yeah, I, as much as I appreciated Trevin's ideas and I really wanted to bring them to light just because there's other ways to think about this problem, running it through a variety of browsers or different rendering edges and stuff just to see how tolerant it is in the, in the various parsers of this code. I think that's an important piece of the equation. So absolutely. That's one of the reasons I read Tim's comments. He sort of got to the, my engineering mind too. Yeah. I got to mention this one other thing. I, I don't think we'll send another mug out, but okay. the Dan, the comment right below it said, uh, I was listening on the drive home, coffee in hand, when Richard drops the, we'll call that the full douche, I literally sprayed coffee all over my windshield dashboard and <laughs> steering wheel because I laughed so hard. Could not remember what he was talking about. Went and played back the bit. In the middle of the show, Yeah, we ended up talking about iPhones and the iWatch and all that sort of stuff. Right. And I suggest, I thought of this idea of, hey, if you're using, is the iWatch using the Bluetooth channel on the iPhone so that you couldn't use a Bluetooth headset at the same time. Because if you're wearing, <laughs> if you had the iPhone and the watch and the headset on, that's the full douche, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? 
which you thought was funny the first time as well. <laughs> but I apparently I just ripped that line out because I didn't remember saying it. Oh, well. Anyway, sorry about your windshield, Dan. Now we have a new slogan for a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry for the digression. Tim, mug's on its way to you. If you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts and .NET Rocks guests. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Elijah Manor. Elijah is a Christian and a family man. He works at Ramsey Solutions as a senior front-end web developer. He's a Microsoft ASP.NET MVP, ASP Insider, IE User Agent. Ooh, we got to talk about that. And a plural site author. He enjoys blogging at ElijahManor.com and tweeting at Elijah Manor about things he learns. Welcome, Elijah. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. And, uh, yeah, we were just talking about how it's amazing that you haven't been on the show before. So we're sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. It's my honor to be on the show. Oh, it's an honor to have you. Because you are very uh, quite visible in the community and uh, have written some amazing blog posts. We see you speak at, uh, at different places. You were just at Angle Brackets? Yes, I lost my voice there, so... Uh... It's mostly back, so hopefully that's not an issue. You know, you're not the first one, or the only one that lost their voice there. Kathleen Dollard was wrecked. Oh, no. You know what this is? I'll, I'll tell you exactly the, what happened. This is... Dryness, right? This is Ward Bell. <laughs> <laughs> Ward Bell brought disease to angle brackets and dev intersection. He showed up at yep. the early workshop, had only a quarter voice, a little rough on the mend, and it propagated. You think? So, oh, well, yeah. It's uh, half a dozen different speakers all uh, had voice problems and all very much the same thing. Word. I spoke to him at the speaker dinner, and I was fine then, but the next well, day. And you see, you just got to stop kissing people, Elijah. Like, it's going <laughs> to get you every time. I mean, I know Ward's irresistible, and that red zoot suit, what are you going to do? Oh, that zoot but... suit was amazing. You got to post this, a picture of Ward in his zoot suit. But, you know, he, he did a uh, an elbow tap to me, so yes. I guess he, was, he knew by then. He was then. being diligent, but apparently yeah. he was contagious. Oh, well. So, <laughs> yeah. It happens. This is the one of the, one of the challenges of, of doing a show is sometimes disease runs rampant. So, Elijah, you talk to people about CSS all over the world, and when you talk to them, do you sense uh, fear or more pain? around CSS. <laughs> Mostly pain. When did you stop beating uh, children? <laughs> yeah. Actually, most of my speaking and writing has been all about JavaScript. It's only, this is actually my first talk here at Past Angle Brackets where I did one about CSS, mainly because the more I go to conferences and meet developers, I do feel that, that, that pain, that angst that they're, people are just feeling. It's on their face. Yeah. Uh, and you just hear it like they... Uh, because really it stems back to a lot of developers um, who are really good at computer science and like building awesome things are being pushed to the front end, uh, you know, with sp single page apps and just things like that. And so they're being forced into this area where JavaScript feels kind of normal. Like they have to learn a little bit, like it's dynamic, it's functional, but 
they can get over that. Markup's pretty easy. I mean, you just, you know, there's tags. <laughs> but then the CSS realm, it, it seems like it should be dirt simple uh, when you read a tutorial. But when you actually go in and do something, uh, if you don't sit down and learn a, a couple key foundational principles, it could be just so annoying and frustrating and, you know, you want to pull your hair out. And, and so I was trying to address that crowd who just, you know, had a bad taste in their mouth and just, just for, gave up on it. Yeah. Uh, and, and grab, you know, Twitter bootstrap came out and they're like, Oh, I'll just use that. Now it, Twitter bootstrap is great. It's not bad, but I saw many developers just grasping at that, realizing that they don't have to learn anything. Yeah, it's the punt option, right? I'm not going to yeah, think about yeah. this. Just stick this in. Somebody else will do it if we need to change it. And like everything else, I mean, a tool is good up until that point where you can't use it because you don't understand what it's doing. And really, that describes me for for many years uh, because even though I'm I've been a front end person for many years, uh, I've always worked with an individual who's just really good at CSS and design, and they would just do all that for me. And so I'd focus on the really deep problems with, you know, frameworks and JavaScript and how to organize and unit testing and just leave that up to this other individual. And at several different jobs, it happened that way. But eventually it came to the point where like, I need to learn this for myself. I can't always depend on someone else. And so I was forced to sit down and kind of, how do I even think about this problem? Um, and again, the whole talk was kind of focused on that type of person. I, I called it back end Brian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love the personas. Yeah, I had personas. It was a new, a new thing I did with this talk. Because at a conference, it's so hard to, to get everyone engaged because the audience is so diverse. So I came up with three personas for this talk. One's back end Brian. He's really good at computer science. It's just he's been burned by CSS. It just didn't make sense. He gave up. Yeah. Another one is Junior Jacob. So Someone who's just learning, maybe he watched a Pluralsight course or two, but he hasn't, doesn't have real world experience yet. So very kind of junior. And then there's mid-level Melissa and, and these would like pop up on the screen and slide up and slide out depending on if it pertained to them. But mid-level Melissa actually could get her job done. She's proficient at like, you know, a comp, but maybe it's not well organized. Maybe she's not using the latest techniques that, um, for cross browser support and some of the things you've talked about earlier in your show about you know, this browser might change and yeah. what am I going to do about that? Right. And so, um, so at each point I would kind of introduce it and then, uh, beginner level, talk about some intermediate things to think about. And then I'd talk about some advanced things that are either coming up recently or just better ways to, to organize your code. Cause CSS, not only, even if you understand how it works and how to get around it, it can get out of hand organizationally. Hmm. Uh, it just files are everywhere and like, there's no structure. And if you start using a tool like SAS or less, which is great, and I want you to use those, if you don't use them appropriately, the output of those is gnarly. Uh, and it, it's almost your worst nightmare to, to code around to try to get what you, what you're looking for. So, you know, you talk about SAS and we, you know, it comes up once in a while on the show, but we really haven't talked about it in depth. So what's the difference between CSS and SAS, which I guess stands for syntactically awesome style sheets? Yeah, so SAS is just a, like a higher level abstraction off of CSS. Now, the output of it is CSS. And there's another preprocessor you use is called Less. Uh, mm -hmm. I happen to use SAS. Either one has pretty much the same features. Uh, they allow you to have, you know, variables. So you can actually store off colors or size of paddings and things like that. So you mm -hmm. can use it within your code. So you're not 
constantly search replacing things over and over again that should be site wide. Yeah. Would you call it coffee script for CSS? <laughs> you know that so SAS has two versions. It's actually kind of interesting. They have the SCSS, which looks very much like CSS. It has the curly braces. Uh, so you can actually pull in an existing CSS file and it can be a valid SCSS file. But then okay. they have another another format called just SAS, S-A-S-S. And it is very much uh dependent of the indentation, much like CoffeeScript. So there's mm-hmm. no curly braces or anything. So it feels so if you're a CoffeeScript lover. Uh, this SASS version of SAS might appeal to you because mm, it's uh, but um, most people that I know tend to use the SCSS version mainly because it's backwards compatible. You could, you could take an existing CSS file that you've been working on and just pull it right over and, and it will work immediately, but then you could tweak it out, which is very nice. Uh, one of the, the dangers uh, that SAS has and less is it allows you to nest your selectors. So maybe you have like a navigation element and you want to target the, the anchor underneath it. Well, normally in CSS, you'd say nav space A or something like that. And then you would have your, you define all the rules. But with, with nesting, you could have nav open curly brace and in, inside of it, you could have an A and open curly brace. So you're kind of nesting them. Once you uh, compile it, the end result will be the same as CSS you had written before, but it allows you to kind of organize and group things together, which sounds a little, sounds great because you don't have to think all these crazy rules and repeat yourself. But the danger it gets is if you start nesting too deeply, uh, maybe three or four or five levels deep, the, the output of the compiled output is very specific. You'll have something that looks like nav space ul space li space, you know, <laughs> it, it just keeps going on and on. And the longer your selectors are, uh, the more specific they are, which is a whole term in CSS, which m- many people have fought with if they've ever written a line of CSS. And it's like, why, why is the background not changing red? Mm-hmm. I wrote it right here and it should work. Well, there's a whole idea of, it's called specificity, where depending on how many of these things you, you combine, it makes it way more specific. And you, in order to override it, you have to have something more specific. So people end up, you know, using important or, uh, or inlining their styles on their elements or doing some crazy things that they probably know they shouldn't be doing. You're saying you should not do inlining ever? Is that like a, a yeah, rule? I don't think you should be, you shouldn't inline because that makes it very hard for, uh, anyone else to come in and override those styles. Right. Because that, that's pretty much an extreme important thing. Like, hey, Ignore everything else that takes precedence. And that's not Got very it. friendly if you want to do theming or if, you know, you have a designer making, uh, some changes in your CSS. It's really hard for them to overwrite that. So it's better to keep it in the CSS file and allow normal standard rules uh, to apply. If it, and now if you're running into problems, then that, maybe you should step back and think about, well, what's really happening here? Yeah. So the, uh, do, do not repeat yourself, uh, exactly, rule applies yeah. to CSS as much as it does to development. Yeah. So the nesting thing is great, um, but I, I tend to try to restrict myself to like three levels deep uh, or, or two if possible. Um, and that was actually linters for, for SAS. So much like we've talked about linting for JavaScript for, for a long time, you know, back in the Crockford days with JS Lint and now JS Hint and ES Lint and all that. There's mm-hmm. tons of linting tools for JavaScript, but there hasn't been very good linting for CSS. But there is something called SCSS Lint, which is great. Uh, and we run it on our code. It enforces us to not nest too deeply. 
It also enforces us to have a consistent naming standard, like on our, our class names, which is great. Uh, cause you don't want to go rogue and start like, well, how do I name something? Uh, you could actually enforce that any colors that you use have to be referenced by a variable and it can't just be directly mapped to a hex value. So that kind of enforces good abstraction of colors, like in variables and things like that. So there's all these cool rules, uh, that you could use with, um, linting in your SAS. And so I almost think of it kind of like a programming language and then I try to pull out common things. So another thing you can do with SAS is you could, um, call mixins, which like a, you could almost think of them as little functions. Uh, so it's a common piece. So a, a classic example, which is not a good example, is all the vendor prefixes you have to add these days, like for border radius, which, you know, yes. uh, yeah. you don't really want to manually add all those. And so a common use case in SAS was create a mixin, which is called border radius. You just call it and pass a number in, and it will generate uh, all the things that you told it that mixin should have. Which is really nice, but these days, I don't even use mixins for that. Uh, there's a tool called Auto Prefixer, which is something you run on your CSS after the build. Okay. It will, add, it'll, add, so you, you code against the official standards of CSS mm-hmm. and allow this tool to go and modify the output. So you don't even think about it anymore. Right. Well, and I think this is sort of the, I really appreciate your take on this, Elijah, because you're talking to me like a developer as a developer saying, Hey, remember when we like code quality? So we had JS Lint. Well, here's CSS Lint, like make your code better. Yeah. And these new tools to just have good behavior, like the auto prefixer, like I'm glad to know about that. That's absolutely something I want to use to take care of those things. So a pre-processor for CSS and a post-processor for CSS. Yeah, and it's great because uh, there's also things like some things that you've been warned against in CSS is like using import, like importing other styles. Because normally you want to organize your stuff into different files. But if you actually use the native import, what will happen is it makes an extra HTTP request to uh, to pull those in, like if you just actually deployed that. But if you say import with SAS, it says, oh, well, we pro- we'll, we're going to do that ahead of time on the server while we're building it. And so it'll pull them all together. So you're still developing it in different files. So it's, you know, much more modular. It's easier to, you know, for you know, merging and things like that. Uh, but the end result is more performant. Um, and also extend. So inheritance, that's something we like with JavaScript, right? In other languages, there's something called extends you could use with, um, SAS where you kind of <clears throat> maybe have a button that all buttons are going to have a, a generic, feel like you know they're going to be rounded slightly and maybe have a gradient you define that in a class or a placeholder and then other where other places where you're like oh maybe i have a success button or a you know an air button you would extend the kind of base class of the the button that you defined already and then define just the overrides Mm -hmm. so it feels very nice and it it feels very like pro like i'm running a program like so you definitely have dry css you don't repeat yourself um, with this tool. Now that's using extend and things is not the end all. Like it's actually called cascading style sheets for a reason. Like right. styles do cascade. And something I see often, um, in some samples that, you know, when we're reviewing, doing code reviews for, uh, poss- possible candidates to work here, I'll, I'll see a lot of junior people just repeat like color everywhere or the font family mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, so it's also important when CSS, like certain things do propagate through the, uh, the styles you don't have to repeat yourself all the time so do you look at the style propagation like event bubbling it's sort of the same kind of behavior 
It's the same idea. Yeah. Uh, but the, the trick is not everything does in, inherit. Uh, so that's something you have to learn too. There's certain rules that do inherit, certain rules that do not. Uh, so that can get kind of tricky. Right. Are they arbitrary? Like, what does it inherit? No, they're well defined. It's just, uh, it's just more as you use it, you kind of learn the things. Now, obviously, things that aren't inherited, which are a good thing, are like um, maybe margin uh, or the border. Like, if I have a dashed border on like a parent element, I don't want that to every child of that element to also have a dash border. Right. Cause that's something that's usually unique to whatever particular element that you're, you're doing. Yeah. Or like, you know, float, you don't want everything. If the yeah. parents floated, you don't want all your children to be floated, but yeah. the things that are inherited are like the color, the font, font. Yeah. um, alignment. Like if you've ever set text align to center, it will, everything inside of it kind of propagate. So stuff that's really style. Cause it, it feels like there's, things in CSS now that sort of go beyond just the look of the page. Yeah, you know, it, I can throw in my two cents here from a XAML point of view, right? If you're doing any kind of WPF work or or Windows Store work or Universal Apps, you do have the, that same style thing, but you, you can embed behaviors in the style as well that, you know, like complete behaviors and animations and things. So you can have buttons that when you hover over them, they sort of grow out at you or, or depress, you know, or shade or something like that. Can you do the, the same kind of behaviors and animations and things with CSS or SAS? Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, SAS doesn't give you too much. I mean, they could give you some helpers and things like that, some shortcuts. But CSS has like all, all the animations and transitions and transforms where you like, you could, uh, well, the, at the low level, you could, and there's an animation with keyframes. You could totally define all of your animations and go crazy. Mm. Uh, like, you know, you could go really wild, but there's a, an interesting thing called transitions where you define where you want to go and it knows where it started. And then you just tell it, Hey, I want to now transition to this other look and feel. And it figures out how to animate from one state to another. So you don't have to be so particular about all the rules. But what usually happens for me is I'll start with a transition for some animation, mm. but then it doesn't quite get me what I want. So then I'll drop down to the next level and define all my custom keyframes uh, and actually use the animation property in CSS. But yeah, you could do all those things uh, much like you, you could in your environment, but, uh, but it's now it's native. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you have to have IE10 and above or any other browser to have the, the animations. And so that's just where you live. So fortunately, in the app that we're building at uh, Ramsey Solutions, it's called Every Dollar. It's an online budgeting app. We support only IE10 and above and pretty much all other browsers. Uh, and it's been amazing to me how little issues that we've had uh, with IE. Like we just code to the standard. We use auto prefixer to fill in all the gaps. Uh, and most everything just works everywhere. Wow. And it's I've been pleasantly surprised. Once you drop off, now obviously IE8, uh, it's using the old JavaScript engine like ES6, or sorry, ES3. So once you go to IE9, you have ES5, which is ECMAScript 5, which that's tons better, but you still lack uh, some of the newer CSS animation type stuff. So if you drop off 9 too, which really, when we look at our browser usage across our apps, once there's not many people using 9. Uh, there's almost, I think there was less of IE9 than 8. 
But once you bump up to 10 and 11, you know, then because the auto upgrading is starting to happen. Right. Yeah. Once you, if you're using IE9, then you're an upgrader and you're probably using 11. Yeah. And so uh, it's been really pleasant for us to just focus on 10 and above and, and just watch things work. It's, it's really quite nice. Now, obviously we have, you know, some, um, some polyfills to fill some gaps. Um, but most everything, you know, we, we set it up and now we just kind of reap the benefits of the open web that's helping each other grow better. So, so here's something for you. There's, there's lots of, uh, frameworks out there and I know, you know, I'm not telling you nothing you don't know, but, uh, do you find yourself like a kid in a candy store or is it like, oh no, here's another framework that I have to investigate to see if it's actually going to save me time? I mean, what's your, what's your sort of default stance when somebody says some, you know, like, like bourbon, for example, you know, some, a mix in library for SAS, you can do animations and things or all sorts of things. But, um, you, you hear about that and would you say, would you say, oh, well, let me go check that out. Or are you like, Oh my God. What else? You know, somebody else has made another, another framework. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned it. We've actually used to, uh, we have used bourbon, but we, we don't use it anymore. So what we typically look at, and I very much love looking at what's the latest and greatest. Now, if you know anything about me, I tweet a lot <laughs> about what's going on. So I'm always kind of, I'm mostly aware of all the, the, the cool mixins and libraries and frameworks going on. I, I like to have my thumb on that, so I at least know what's going on. And so it is very tempting to like, oh, there's something new, let's use it. Um, the interesting thing about most of these tools is somewhat, some developer has felt some pain, and they're trying to resolve that pain. They're trying to, to make it better. And so they built the tool to fix it. So part of the trick is to see, uh, well, is that the same pain I'm feeling? Uh, but you have to go a step further. And I actually have a whole talk, uh, I gave about how to pick a library. Like there's a really lot to it, uh, because you're really investing, um, a lot into a library because, you know, what if the, the maintainer just changes their mind that they're not going to do that anymore, which I've seen over and over again, or are there any unit tests for it? Now it's maybe a little different for a CSS framework, but mm -hmm. I want to make sure it's well tested. What's the community look like is this something that just one guy made and it's just him or right. is there a health, healthy community about it so that i have this whole talk about that because i think it's it's much bigger than just one thing sure and as a business uh we have to support that are we willing to to fork that project and make it continue if it dies yeah. uh, and that's just a hard decision well with uh with bourbon for example and even uh compass which Many people who use SAS use Compass. It has a lot of extra mix-ins and a, a kind of a build system, things like that. We decided not to use that. It's, it was a little bulky for what we needed. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the mix-ins were like kind of those border radius type things, adding vendor prefixes, which Auto Prefixer does that for us. So we're like, hey, let's just drop this big dependency right. that, that slows things down a little bit. And all we really needed it for was the vendor prefixes. So we'll use another tool that has a good community, does one thing really well and focus on that. As for bourbon, uh, you know, it has lots of nice mixins too, but we found we didn't need many of them. Got it. Yeah, it is kind of eye candy, huh? So we used, uh, and many of it we could do by hand or just make custom versions of just, just the few that we need. Yeah. Uh, so in our, in our toolbox, we try not to have too much extra stuff. Uh, just kind of what we need, uh, when we need it. 
And if it, if it makes sense, like if we start building more and more of our own stuff, then maybe we'll pull in something. If we can find one that's well-maintained. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? I uh, must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to announce my new web UI helper. It's called Crass. Crass? <laughs> yeah, with a few simple tags, you can make all your error messages contain deeply offensive slurs about your mother and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you're making contributions to the community. Absolutely. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Steven Kalana. Congratulations, Steven. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. The other shirt we need to make. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Steven just won a Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik, let me tell you. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. Elijah, also, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on uh, technology today, what would you buy? All right, so this is going to sound a little silly, but I recently got an Apple Watch. But unfortunately, I don't hardly know anyone who has another Apple Watch. And so there's some features like sketching and like sending heartbeats and stuff that I can't do. So I would buy all my friends, <laughs> or maybe not all, but <laughs> up to 5,000, if I could find that many, uh, an Apple Watch, just so we could like, I'd get my wife one too, so we could share our heartbeat, because that might be weird if I shared it with someone else. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the sketching, I mean, that's just a cool little silly thing that I actually did for the first time today. Uh, one of my leaders says, hey, let's, you know, he sent me one. And I'm like, oh, cool. So anyway, it'd be nice if more people had one. But uh, I've enjoyed it. It's maybe a little bit of a trinket, but um, it's been kind of useful to, for to me. I used to miss my wife's texts because uh, I'd have my phone <laughs> laid out and vibrate somewhere. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so now it's just like, oh, I go. And I could just say, I could just reply to it with my voice if I wanted to. Right. Uh, and it's just real convenient for me. Now, I know there are many other solutions to do that, um, many other phones that will do things like that, but our watches, but I enjoy it. But do you use the Bluetooth headset as well? I have not tried that. Uh, I, I don't know if I want to be that guy, but... Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to buy them all iPhones too, so... I know, but hmm. see, my wife, it, purposefully, she doesn't want a smartphone because she just knows how, you know, you get sucked into those so easily. And so right. she, but she li li likes to text and I, we enjoy texting each other. So she uh, has just a simple one that slides out with a keyboard and she loves it. Like, and, uh, nice. Works well for her. So yeah, having an Apple Watch for her wouldn't work out because. Not she, so much, no. The one person you might actually want to send your heartbeat to. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's not the reason to switch over to smartphone. No, it's not. It's not a compelling reason. <laughs> okay, so let's run down the stack here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take your encouragement, Elijah. I'm going to take CSS seriously, and not just bootstrap my way out of this problem. So it's SAS and CSS lint 
an auto fixer? Yeah, so I, I would use SAS. I would use uh, SCSS Lint uh, and auto prefixer. Yeah. Uh, and then you, because you have all these tools, like a pre and post processor, you would need some kind of tool like Grunt or Gulp or, uh, or maybe tie them into your IDE. Like if you have Visual Studio, they have a lot of nice helpers uh, to automate those things. Uh, so that would at least get you started. Um, if you totally didn't want to go Twitter bootstrap, that might be a little overwhelming if someone's just getting started because there's a lot of things it provides for you. Uh, like uh, many developers like a grid system to like lay things out. Yeah. Uh, and Twitter bootstrap has one of those. Um, if you could get away with IE 10 and above, which is kind of a big thing, uh, and not everyone could do it, there's, there's a technology or a CSS called uh, Flexbox, which is a new way to lay out things on your screen. Historically, if anyone's ever tried to center something vertically and horizontally, or even just vertically, <laughs> it's, it's crazy hard in CSS for some reason or another. Uh, and so Flexbox has really provided a way to lay things out on your screen nicely so they kind of flow and like they'll expand to their widths. And, mm. and, you know, you can define all these things. Like, oh, I want to center vertically? Sure, I can. Oh, I want them to expand to their environment? Sure. And you can give all these rules, which is, and you could also nest those as well. And so right. that's a much better solution than having a like a, a straight up float, floating grid framework. Um, and the project that we have initially, uh, I wasn't at the very beginning of the project, and so when it was started, they weren't sure which browsers they were going to use. So they started with a, a kind of floated grid system, much like Twitter uses, and that works well up to a point you kind of start to box yourself in into this little area and then the designers want you to do something, you know, fancy. (laughs) And so like, oh, I want this centered and look exactly like this positioned up here. And I was getting myself into this box where I just could not do what they wanted me to do uh, within that particular grid system. So I I just gutted it out and replaced it with a a flex system and it worked much better for, for what we needed to do. So, so uh, it, it's interesting to hear, you know, when you get boxed into a corner, are there other uh, times when there are things that you see people do over and over again that would lead them, you know, to a to a place where they don't know how to get out of? I mean, you, you get the common mistakes that people make when using CSS. It's so easy as you're um, as you're learning CSS or or trying to figure out a problem to get into a position where you just don't even know what's available, like what properties and what values can I even use at this point? And so what I'll, I'll see some people do is, it's much the GCP, the Google copy-paste. Like they Google, they have a problem, they find something, and they paste in tons of uh, styles and properties into their, their code. They eventually get it to work somehow or the other. Yeah. But what, what happens is there's so much cruft and stuff left over that isn't necessary and actually doesn't even make sense. Uh, that the code base will get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Uh, a temptation is like, oh, I solved it, let's move on. Uh, but what I really like to do, because sometimes you just have to play around a little bit to figure out what, what you're going to do. But once you find something that works, try to reproduce it in the most minimal way possible. Like start removing things. Make sure you actually know what's happening and not just like, oh, the render result works like I want. And so that's, I think, a big, a big, important thing to do in your code yeah Uh, otherwise you get out of hand very quickly Uh, but sometimes again you just don't even know what things to try and that's the hard part 
of of just learning. And that part of my talk was to try to introduce some of those concepts of how how to even think about this problem. Um, I know when I first was coming out of the back and Brian realm, um, I was at my job and I was asked to do something, and I was like, "Wow, I usually would rely on my friends for this." So at nighttime, I would I would call them up. And I'm like, "Hey, how do I even think about this particular problem? Like, how do I approach fixing this or real or finding where the problem is?" Mm-hmm. And so they helped me. Like, okay, you open up your dev tools, start at the element that you want to affect. If you don't see the style there, go to its parent. Look at the parent. Mm-hmm. If you don't see it there, go up to the its parent and just sort of walk me through like some steps of just how to get your head around debugging because really most of your time is debugging problems yeah. and not creating. <laughs> Maybe that's where the pain comes from because I'm a developer with Visual Studio. I'm used to being able to find things easily, you know, and hit F12 and go to the where the function is or where a variable is defined or something. And with CSS, you know, you just sort of have to trace up the source and find where fi- what files are linked, go find them. And then, you know, it, are there tools out there to make it easier to, to at a glance to tell you, you know, what, um, what lines of CSS are impacting a particular element? I mean, is that what uh, the F12 tools, you know, the, the, the debugging tools in, um, you know, in the browser, do they help you do that? Is there anything in there that helps you do that? Yeah, the dev tools these days have come very, very far. Um, I'm so thankful for them. Um, because historically, like, there's these things called pseudo elements that, um, it's, it's like a, so it, you have a normal element on your screen. You can actually define another element that's before it and after it and mm-hmm. actually style that and do some crazy things. Historically, mm-hmm. those would never show up in the dev tools. And you just, you know, good luck trying to figure that out. Uh, but now they're starting to add those. <laughs> um, but yeah, right. definitely the dev tools are really good. You know, even back in Firebug days, they would show which rules are being overwritten, uh, where their source is. And so that's a, a definitely a good place to start. Um, some interesting tooling that actually might help as you're developing is Brackets. It's an open source IDE by Adobe. They actually have this. So they developed a new IDE. Uh, and they, since they had an opportunity to start from scratch, they're like, let's think differently about IDEs instead of just replicating Sublime or, mm. you know, some of these text-based ones. They're like, let's assume we have the web and let's think a little bit differently. And they actually have this feature. Um, I forget what they call the feature, but what it lets you do is you, you put your cursor on maybe a, an H1 or something inside your IDE. You mm. press this command, a little thing slides down. And shows you all the CSS across all the files that you have in your IDE that apply to that particular uh, element. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Really awesome. And then you could actually go in and tweak them out. It will, because it's showing you code across all these files. You edit it, you save it there, make a change, and it goes and saves it on the appropriate file. And then it just slides away. That's awesome. See, that's like code lens for CSS. Yeah, so it's pretty awesome. Um, I'm not aware of that feature in any other IDE. Um, I've used brackets uh, on and off. I, I'm kind of a, a junkie when it comes to IDEs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always looking for something better. And so I'll, I'll usually bounce between brackets and Atom, the GitHub Atom, which is open source. Uh, and then um, I saw Visual Studio Code come out, so I downloaded that to look at it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't support some of the ES6 stuff that we're doing. Hmm. It's not. It doesn't understand some of that stuff. So Because um, we, we use... Uh, we're building our apps on React and ES6 and 
yeah. things like that. So it's not quite there. I, I think it's going to be from what it looks like. They're going to support all those environments. But how do you like ES6? ECMAScript 6, right? Is what we're talking about? Yes, yes. Oh, I love it. It's, it's, um, it's a breath of fresh air just to have a lot of the, the, the features that are just really kind of annoying. And they're mostly nice to haves. Um, things that I would have to do manually that I know how to do, but it makes it a little bit easier for other developers. It cleans up the code a little bit, makes it a little more terse. So you can kind of focus on the thing that you're doing and not all the cruft that makes it happen. Right. Uh, so that's kind of nice. Um, but really, it, we used to support uh, use Lodash a lot, which is like a helper utility, much like you might have heard of underscore. Uh, Lodash is very similar to that. Okay. A bunch of helper methods for JavaScript. Well, now that uh, if you have ES5, which IE9 or above, many of those functions are in ES5. But once you even get to ES6, then a lot of the Lodash stuff's kind of taken care of. There's still a couple of nice features in there. Lodash, like um, throttling or debouncing. So if you have... a, a things in your in your web page that happen a lot and then you want to kind of tone those down then those are helpful but but yeah i enjoy es6 a lot so we we're using more and more features we used to use uh, google tracer to yeah. compile our es6 to es5 mm-hmm. but it didn't support all all the features that es6 had mm. so we recently moved to babel.js which is another compiler and it does a much really good job of keeping up to speed of all the new specs and um making sure that we could use those today. And it's been, it's been, it's been fun to learn. It's been exciting. So awesome. I mean, just, there's so many tools. It's, it's almost driving me crazy. And, and I, and react is one of those ones I've got in my back pocket. Like at some point we should just do a show on react. It's, it's a yeah. huge subject. Yep. Yeah, we should, we should, that'd be fun. Is there anything quick you could say about react? I mean, this is Facebook's thing, right? Yeah. So, so when I, I was so used to making, so I've been, been doing front end development for quite a while you know, tons of jQuery stuff. I spoke on jQuery conferences a lot. You know, I worked for a pin which we did jQuery consulting for companies just to help them think about building front end apps. You know, then Backbone came out. I played with that. Angular came out. I played with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this React thing came out and I, I wasn't part of the decision making. So it was kind of an interesting story. We maybe talk about another show if we do one. Um, <laughs> but when I came to it, it was like, Wow, this is a very different way to think. <laughs> right. And it was a little daunting at first because I was so ingrained of solving problems a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, attaching event handlers here and, you know, thinking about all this extra stuff where when you go to React, it's basically the, the mindset that you ha- you're, you need to get in is I'm going to pretend that I'm going to click F5 and refresh the browser <laughs> and it's going to re-render everything. So yeah. I'm going to change a piece of data and then I'm going to assume the whole thing will redraw itself. And so you don't have to worry about, okay, well, if I change this, then I need to go up here and change that because it needs this information. Like React tries to get rid of all that complication. Now, because, and the, the reason for it, now it sounds inefficient, we'll talk about that in a second. The reason for it is it really simplifies the problem set for the developer. If you could assume, start, if you have this data, it's going to trickle down and change all these components. Then if you could think that way, then each component becomes a simple s- state machine. Like, oh, if it has this data, it looks like this. If it has mm-hmm. this data, it looks like that. And, it, and so a problem set becomes very simple. And it's one-way data flow, meaning you, you can't go back and automatically have two-way data binding. It's, it's a one-way data binding. Because what happens, and actually Mishko has, uh, was 
in one of their YouTube uh, Angular updates that they had, he mentioned, and I, I can send you a link if you're interested. He mentioned, you know, two-way data binding was great, but unfortunately we found when we started to get to larger applications, it started to become an anti-pattern. And the reason for that is, let's say you found a bug in your code, like in your Angular app or whatever it does two-way data binding. Good luck trying to figure out how <laughs> that came to happen because all the, there's so much magic going on of data updating models and models updating views and mm -hmm. all this magic stuff. is It's great to prototype, but once you find a bug, it can be really gnarly to try to figure out, trace it back to the original cause. Right. But if you have a one-way data flow, which... Again, sounds awfully inefficient. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a weakness. Uh, then uh, it solves that problem. So the reason, the, the way they get around the weakness is they have something called a virtual DOM. So they have an in-memory version of what the DOM looks like. And um, what they do is they know what data generated the previous DOM. And so now I'm saying, hey, here's some new data. So what they could do is to say, okay, here's what it looked like before. Based on the data, will it change? If so, what's changing? And if that's the case, only update that particular thing that happened to change. And so it's much like game programming, like hardcore, you know, console game programming. They don't redraw the screen every time. They have this virtual game module in, in memory. And they, they know if I make a change here, which pixels do I need to redraw? Mm. And they only redraw those pixels. Um, and they could do, with that, they could do some clever things like, oh, if, if I deleted a node and then added a new one, like conceptually, that's what you wanted to do. Right. The virtual DOM would be like, oh, I'll just reuse the same element because I don't need to delete one and make a new one. I could just totally update the one that already existed. And so it can make all these really intelligent optimizations mm -hmm. because updating an existing node is super quick. Creating a new, a DOM node from scratch is kind of costly. And so it can make all these really intelligent optimizations and ha have an extremely fast result. Um, we've been very pleased with um, our performance. And if you ever run into a bottleneck where maybe you are feeling a performance issue, they have all these tools that run in development and you could actually pinpoint where the problem is. And then if you have a component that's slow, what, they have a hook inside of it called uh, should component update. And what you do is it'll pass in the data that is changing. And inside your method, you're like, oh, I don't need to update at all. You just return false. And it won't, it won't actually go to the next step of figuring out if it should and all, all this crazy stuff. So the, it's actually really impressed, um, impressed me for performance and also simplifying the whole development process. Mm. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense that it came from Facebook because this is them, right? Constantly tweaking UI and trying different ways with a really complicated chunk of code. Like, I would think this thing shines when you've got a really large, elaborate UI that you can make changes and quickly see what you've done and see the effects of it and, and know how to fix it if you get into trouble. And since each component is like a finite state machine or it just knows about its state, you could unit right. test it really well uh, because, hey, I'm passing this data in, this should happen. I'm passing this data in, this should happen. So you could actually unit test it well. Now, what sounds like it's, now you would think you'd step back and say, well, Facebook, if they're making this, wouldn't this be bad for the user? Because mm. typically when you think of spas or single page apps, you think, wow, this might not be good for the end user experience because many spas are pretty much an empty body 
and everything gets jammed in with JavaScript, which is right. not, not typically a good experience for a couple of reasons, SEO. And also, mm-hmm. if I load the page, now I have to make another request right. and actually go get the data and then do all the templates. And so Facebook, that wouldn't fly for them they because uh, they have tons of users that would get annoyed. Uh, so React actually has a mechanism to render to a string. So if you're on the server, if the first time you called it, they could actually render the whole app of what you would see on that screen and send you the markup for what you would see on that particular you know, route. And then what would happen, there's a checksum, and it would double-check the checksum, make sure they're the same. And if they're the same, then it applies all the event listeners and all the handlers. And now it's wired up for a single-page app. So now when you, you interact with it, it will just use like spa techniques. Um, so it makes it performant on the first load, and then now you have a spa when it's on the client. Elijah, have you seen Aurelia? Played with it at, at all? I've heard about it. I have not played with it, but only good things come from. <laughs> I hear so many people saying that uh, they're moving off of Angular and into Aurelia because of the things that Rob talked about uh, on our show. Yeah, I need to listen to that one. I, I, I've never met him. I, you'd think that we'd meet one of the conferences, but yeah, I'll, I'll need to listen to that one. I haven't heard much about that one. Most of the things I know about are Backbone, Angular, React, and I know enough of Ember. I haven't used it, but um, mm. I know enough people that have used it that I could talk to them. Well, I got I to gotta tell you, man, I'm impressed by your uh, enthusiasm to go forward into the world of you know investigating all of these tools as they come out. I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't share it, man. I'm sorry, but uh, yeah, I like to find something that works and and stick with it. But of course, in the web, that's kind of, you know, that's why I don't constantly do a, whole, a moving target. Yeah, that's why I find other people to do the web stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks. Yeah. So thanks. Exactly. Thanks, Richard. That's exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> What's next for you? Where are you going to be speaking or anything nearby? I'm going to um, Web Directions in Australia next month, and that'll be my first well first trip to Australia. So that's kind of nice. That's cool. And um, I got my first keynote opportunity in Florida later this uh, year. Co- Code on the Beach. So uh, I'm excited about that. My wife's excited about it as well. She's coming with me. So our kids are going to the my in-laws. So yeah, those are the only two coming up that uh, have hard dates. There are a couple of local events in the Nashville area. November, it's like a small mm. conference about Neat. JavaScript and yeah. uh, Co- Coder Fair, which is kind of local. Right. Uh, and then uh, I'm hoping to go to Angle Brackets again in the in the fall. So great, that's it. Well, I'm sure we'll see you out there somewhere. Thanks a lot for talking to us, Elijah. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, 
and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a